The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Reitzel. Master Hakun's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without nought and no ice, outside us no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water, crying I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and pass clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form and going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is that we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is the 19th of May, 2020. Um, we're still broadcasting Teisho's from Sangha House in Onihonga. Um, hopefully we'll be able to uh, fully reopen the centre once 
um, the current uh, 10 percent limit on um, gatherings is lifted. And tonight, um, since we are coming out of uh, strict isolation here in New Zealand, um, we advertised a tentative title for the, tonight's talk of uh, Lessons from Lockdown. I'm not sure that we have lessons quite yet, but um, we're going to explore a little about a bit um, some of the ways that people have experienced lockdown and some ways that we can talk about it or understand it and respond to it because it's 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 um, the many different ways that people are are and have experienced lockdown and lockdown is this this term is used as a kind of sh shorthand it's not really quite right in describing what we've been doing um, in some places it's associated with with um, what you do when you have a, a mass shooter out there um, literally locking locking everything down um, So it doesn't it doesn't really capture what we and many others around the world have been doing and going through. In in this was a kind of an uh, an open isolation. In parts of the United States, they're calling it sheltering in place. I've also heard it referred to as uh, the Great Pause. And some people are using a, a medical metaphor of, of an induced coma. At least you could say the, the economy has been in an induced coma. And just about a day or two ago, I heard a rabbi on the radio talking about it and comparing it to a giant Shabbat. This is the, the, the Sabbath that is observed by uh, Orthodox Jews. Um, when um, no work is done and she described the Shabbat as being a time for uh, stepping back taking stock um, a time for for contemplation and, and, pr and prayer so you know, stepping back or out of our normal uh, lives of, of, of striving and, and working for um, Buddhists a kind of collective home retreat is one I've heard from people and, and this one people are generally experiencing this opportunity very positively a chance to sit more, to live more simply, to, uh, as with the Shabbat, to step out of our frenetic lives and enter into a time of, of less acquisition, less busyness, uh, less frenetic activity, and, and out of this, what people are discovering is 
is the beauty of just being at home. There's a, um, a website, I think it's called New Era Resolutions, and it has emerged out of people's experience of uh, seclusion. And people are making resolutions um, based on what they discovered as, as being valuable during the lockdown. And it's, it's really quite inspiring to read the different things that people um, of all different ages are, are resolving to do, to live differently, to live more, more lightly and uh, less acquisitively. As well as the simple living, people are um, talking about their, their appreciative appreciation for having spent more time with their children, doing simple things together. But if we go back to the image of, of this as, as a retreat, Probably most of the people listening to this talk will have done retreat, done Sashin, and know that it can also be hard. Because we we in within the simplicity and the and the uneventfulness of a retreat, we find that we have to face ourselves face our demons as well as our angels. One student that I was talking to on um, remote Doksan sort of offhandedly said, we're in the bardo. And this, this is another metaphor from our tradition which can can throw some light on this experience we've been through of, of uh, seclusion and, and disorientation. Bardo is um, a Tibetan word and part of a Tibetan, a very elaborate Tibetan teaching, which we're just going to touch on. Um, and I'm referring here to a book called The Dharma by Kalu Rinpoche. It's a classic compendium of, of fundamental teachings in the Mahayana and in the Vajrayana. And um, it says in the glossary, Bardo um, literally means between two. And in general is referring to any interval, any between. And um, in the Tibetan teachings there are six different bardos that are talked about. There's the bardo of dying, the actual death process. So this is the interval from the moment when the individual begins to die until the moment when the separation of the mind and the body takes place. That's how they ex express it. 
And then there's the next bardo is the interval between um, after this after the the physical death when um, quote the mind is plunged into its own nature. It's the first phase of the after death experience. And then the third one is the bardo of becoming. This is the in, in interval in which the mind moves towards rebirth. And then there are three more on top of that, the bardo between birth and death. So that's our ordinary waking consciousness, in other words, our present lifetime. And then there's also the dream bardo, uh, uh, what we experience in sleep, and also uh, meditative concentration is considered to be um, a, a kind of bardo. And in this text, um, there's a whole chapter about the bardo. And in it, Kala Rinpoche says, The word bardo literally means an interval between two things. Ba means interval, and do means two. We can think of this interval in a spatial or temporal way. If there are two houses, the space between them is a bardo. The period between sunrise and sunset, the interval of daylight, is a bardo. A bardo can be of long or short duration, of wide or narrow expanse. To a large extent, our experience is made up of intervals between one thing and another. Even in the case of the momentary thoughts that arise in our mind, there is an interval between one thought arising and fading and the next thought appearing. Such a gap, even if infinitesimal, is a part of every process. Everything we experience has this quality of intervals between states. It's a very um, important point that seems kind of obvious, but um, is saying something that is really um, helpful to understand here. Everything we experience has this quality of intervals between states. Another way of understanding this is that nothing is fixed. We're always in between. We're, we're always in transition, flowing from one thing to the next. Another way of, of uh, understanding this or, or recognizing it is um, if we think about our suffering, so often we're, we're looking forward to uh, or dreading something that we, we think is going to happen, the next thing or sometime in the future. And if we're not doing that, we're very often looking back with nostalgia or regret at something in a previous interval. So in this sense, we're very much in between as well. I was talking about how people were feeling about, um, about the end of the strict lockdown. This was at the end of, of level four. And it seemed that all the people that I talked to were either 
longing to get out and get back to their normal lives or they were anxious about moving out of seclusion even dreading the thought of returning to normal whether it was just because they were enjoying the quiet or whether it was more to do with the fear that of, of contagion So this, this image of the bardo, really, we can relate to it um, both at the individual level and what we've gone through and also collectively, nationally and even globally, we've been in this bardo and, and many people still are and, and may not have any sense of, of any end in sight. While we were, we're on, at level four, heard at one point that at that point in time over half the world's population was in, under some form of seclusion. It's extraordinary to think about about the, the scale of concerted action that has taken place because of the pandemic. And, and really we're all part of um, this massive event, this kind of uh, slow convulsion that we've all been a part of and still are. And we, we don't know really where it's going to go. But what is certain is things will not be the same. It will be uh, like 9-11 that people will think in terms of uh, before and after. So we really, we really are coming back to a very different world than the one we kind of left when we um, undertook uh, seclusion. I'd like to read a little bit from an article called uh, Breaking Open the Bardo, which uh, explores um, the kinds of bardos we experience in this life, um, the the states of of um, being vulnerable and exposed, um, and and in between in some sense when we we lose a sense of being uh, in control of things and. And, and don't really know how they're going to turn out. And the first, the first one she links this to is um, what, it's, what it's like when, when we lose somebody, we, when somebody dies. 
she says she says that the term bardo or intermediate state is not just a reference to the afterlife it also refers more generally to those moments when gaps appear interrupting the continuity that we otherwise project onto our lives In American culture, we sometimes refer to this as having the rug pulled out from under us or feeling ungrounded. These interruptions in our normal sense of certainty are what is being referred to by the term bardo. But to be, be precise, bardo refers to that state in which we have lost our old reality and it is no longer available to us. Anyone who has experienced this kind of loss knows what it means to be disrupted, to be entombed between death and rebirth. We often label that a state of shock. In those moments we lose our grip on the old reality and yet have no sense what a new one might be like. There is no ground, no certainty and no reference point. There is, in a sense, no rest. This has always been the entry point in our lives for religion because in that radical state of unreality we need profound reasoning not just logic not something beyond log but something beyond logic something that speaks to us in a timeless non-conceptual way milarepa is a great um, yogi referred to this disruption as a great marvel singing from his cage from his cave, the precious, the precious pot containing my riches becomes my teacher in the very moment it breaks. The precious pot containing my riches comes, becomes my teacher in the very moment it breaks. This is the Vajrayana idea behind successive deaths and rebirths, and it is the first essential point to understand rupture. The more we learn to recognize the sense of disruption, the more willing and able we will be to let go of this notion of an inherent reality and allow that precious, that precious plot to slip out of our hands. Rupture is taking place all the time, day to day and moment to moment. In fact, as soon as we see our life in terms of these successive deaths and rebirths, we dissolve the very idea of a solid self grasping onto an inherently real life. We start to see how conditional who I amness really is, how even that does not provide reliable ground upon which to stand. And I think she's pointing to uh, the very real uh, positive potential that, that there is in, in this bardo that we're going through. If we can if we can really allow our, our precious pot of riches to break, to, to break open and, and to experience the, the, the groundlessness that, this, that comes with this. She says, at times like this, if we can gain freedom from the eternal grasping onto who I am and how things are, our default mode, then we can get to the business of being. Until now we have been holding on to the idea of inherent continuity in our lives, creating a false sense of comfort for ourselves on artificial ground. 
By doing so, we have been missing the very flavour of what we are. And I think one of the things that, that um, comes out in reading the, the resolutions I was talking about, and which I hear from other people as well, is the, the sense in which people um, did get down more to the business of being. One person, person said to me that she felt that it was the first time she didn't have to justify her sitting, that somehow there was a collective permission coming from, from the society at large to just be, to drop all of the activity, all our efforts at progress and success and acquisition, and winning, getting ahead, suddenly all of that was put down, let go of, so that we could um, protect each other from the virus. And, and people in their isolation discovered that, had glimpses of this, this sense of being, something, something alive and peaceful and simple. We would really get a sense of this on our, on our afternoon walks, going out um, through, through the lockdown period. Um, of course the weather was very beautiful and warm mostly, and zero traffic, no noise clear air and as we walked around the streets of Onihunga noticed that many people had their front doors open. The houses were were open um, and inhabited were people at home. Let's, let's hope that people got enough of a, a sense of this and of its, of its value to um, stick to the resolutions that people are making to live more simply and work towards that being uh, a real value in their lives. We, we do often react strongly against really entering into the uncertainty that comes with dropping, dropping our, what we identify with, our, our opinions about things, our opinions of ourselves. Later in the same article, the writer writes, What's underneath all of our experience? Is there no inherent existence to hold on to? Then what is ultimate reality? Even the most shallow person yearns to know this point. It's what we're always looking for. for. 
It's why we fight with people we love about petty little things, because this unanswered question drives us. If we lose that fight, what's there? What becomes of us? If we lose this relationship, what's left? Who are we? If I lose all my possessions, my job, all my money, then what remains of me? If we don't know the answer, then the question becomes a primordial anxiety that forms the background of all we say and do and think. And this is probably where we, we can touch on what, um, what was so hard for many people in lockdown that, that um, we, we um, came up at, from time to time against our um, primordial anxiety and continued to as the, as the pandemic unfolds. And talking to people, uh, both in dis on Doksan and outside of Doksan, and, and reading online, um, some people are really experiencing a great deal of of uh, a sense of disorientation, and some some people are up against really major change. Um, suddenly, with very limited work prospects, stuck somewhere where the choices are very narrowed. Um, some people struggling with loneliness, um, financial worries, or even actual hardship. S so many difficulties that people are having. In many places, um, no end in sight to the to the disease, which is one area where we can feel so grateful that that there's been a reasonably orderly response to the to the pandemic here. Of course, there are no guarantees, as other countries have experienced second waves and so forth. But at least we have a sense of, of moving forward here. One of the, in reading about what's going on in, in um, New York, one of the most heart-wrenching things is the number of people who are dying alone and, and or or as well, family being unable to be with their loved ones who are sick or dying. The pandemic itself is also giving rise to um, lots of worries about the future, different, taking different forms. Oh, 
how uh, how are all these governments who are creating massive stimulus packages going to target that money? Will we end up just destroying our biosphere even more in order to cover all those debts? Somebody today was saying to me how she found it quite amazing to see how we human beings managed to come together across the globe to save the lives of fellow human beings. But, but will we, and this question was arising forcefully for her, will we have it in us to do the same for all the other species who are threatened in, the, in our world? In the midst of the, the, the sixth period of great extinction, in the history of our planet and we humans are the cause of these mass extinctions. Some people may have seen a video that's been going around, it's very short, but it's uh, uh, a whole lot of clips of different wild animals all over the world coming into cities uh, quiet because of lockdown and exploring them it's it's it's, it's set to the this music of bolero and it's very it's very um, wonderful to see just because there's a sense of these animals um, reoccupying the the land how responsive as soon as the quiet comes they're willing to come and explore and play in the midst of the deserted streets. And um, a scientist who studies um, the world's atmosphere exclaimed in, in talking about how, how clean the air had become over the time of the lockdown, said, the atmosphere is so responsive. There's so much potential in in our world for healing, given half a chance. But it's like setting a bone, and as we can set that bone straight, it hasn't got a chance to heal. Very, very hard part of all this is not knowing where we're headed. We know that the trajectory has been profoundly changed by by this pandemic and yet it is not clear how we humans will handle what is going on there there are different kinds of silver linings to what we're, we're going through can't get into all of them but there's also um, things of concern shadows there's the news came out about all the the fires that have been lit at cell phone towers 
around New Zealand. And uh, apparently there's, there's this, this, this social media generated or, or, per, um, or um, disseminated conspiracy theory that the 5G network is designed to compromise our immune system so that we'll catch COVID-19. And the deep state is responsible for this. And I think we can we can have concerns about um, the rise of this kind of uh, reactionary behavior, violence even. Just as we can have concern about this very intense and enthusiastic shift towards digital platforms for a lot of our interactions, a lot of our life, our play, our meetings, our work. We have to be mindful of what we are uh, foregoing in making that shift. Of course, it's been wonderful to have it when nothing else is available, but there is there does seem to be a real sense of uh, we won't be going back to where we were before. We'll be embracing this stuff even more. So we, we are in the midst of this massive historical event, this, this turning point, with not knowing exactly how it will turn out. I'd like to um, read a, sh a short piece from a recent New Yorker, the, um, April the 13th <clears throat> issue, and in it, it has a, a whole series of um, short pieces about people's experience of um, isolation in, in different places. And the, the one I'd like to read is called The New Calm. I'll read and comment on it a little bit. Um, this is by um, Maggie Nelson, who's a writer. She has received various prizes and um, wrote a book called The Argonauts. She writes, I don't feel much like reading these days. Who's, who does? Who has the time with all the kids at home? Or who can concentrate? Yesterday, my reading consisted of go, dog, go, a feat achieved while trying to fathom or simply to bear the feeling of delighting in phonetic discovery as I sit on a warm couch next to the person I adore, while so much fear, sorrow, uncertainty and panic surges outside. An outside that looks like nothing but an empty street, flat, if not radiant, with the new calm. The feeling led me to pull Natalia Ginsburg down from the shelf. Um, Natalia Ginsburg is a, um, well, was a, an Italian writer. Um, she wrote a lot about um, wartime Italy. The feeling led me to pull down Natalia Ginsburg from the shelf. I felt a sudden need to read Winter in the Abruzzi, an essay 
I considered one of the most perfect and devastating ever written. It's only five and a half pages. I managed to read it while shepherding my son through another utterly chaotic, thoroughly well-intentioned Zoom class for second graders. Ginsburg's essay begins with a descriptive tale of a small Italian town in winter. Cavernous kitchens lit by oak fires, prosciutto hanging from the ceilings, women who've lost their teeth by age 30, deepening snow. Then, on the second page, Ginsburg tells us simply, our lot was exile. She doesn't say why, but it's the early 1940s in Italy, so we can imagine. In fact, she, she and her husband were sent into exile in this remote area, sort of a kind, under a kind of house arrest, uh, because her, her um, husband was um, uh, anti-fascist, communist. As, as many of the, the, the anti-fascists were at that stage. She then tells us about her new life in the village with her young children and her husband, a professor who writes at an oval table in their kitchen. We hear about their routines, their bitterness, their delights and their trepidations suspended as they are in a rich and eerie lull. The essay wears an epigraph from Virgil, Deus nobis haec otia fecit. God has granted us res this respite. God has granted us this respite. This interval of peace. And a respite it turns out to be, as the appalling crystalline last paragraph of the essay makes clear. My husband died in Regina Coeli prison in Rome a few months after we left the village. When I confront the horror of his solitary death, of the anguished choices that preceded his death, I have to wonder if this really happened to us, we who bought oranges at Giro's and went walking in the snow. I had faith then in a simple, happy future, rich with fulfilled desires, with shared experiences and ventures. But that was the best time of my life, and only now, that it's gone forever, do I know it. This essay closes with a date, uh, 1944, which was, which was the year in which her husband died um, as the result of, of torture. Um, the writer continues, as the wise wisely instruct us to count our blessings, which I do, I can't help but wonder how to sustain the sense of gratitude through the undulations of daily domestic life, when so many of our homes balloon not only with love and recognition, but also with stress, turbulence, even violence, from forces within and without. This is a really, a really big question, how to sustain a sense of gratitude through all the ups and downs of our lives, which is, is really just a question that is brought into greater focus because of the time we, we have spent at home, but it's, it's always there, always a question.
If this question is rhetorical, it's because I don't want anyone, including myself, to feel that they're doing kinship wrong if and when it hurts. Today, for me, it hurts. It is sweet and it hurts. I think it hurts sometimes for too, Ginsburg too. And it's not clear to me that it could have been different even if she knew all that was to come. The murder of Ginsburg's faith in a simple happy future, rich with fulfilled desires, is cruel. It is also the sound of human lives cresting against material and mortal limits, of flesh grinding into history. Earlier in the essay she drives the point home. There is a certain dull uniformity in human destiny. The course of our lives follows ancient and immutable laws with an ancient, changeless rhythm. Dreams never come true, and the instant they are shattered, we realize how the greatest joys of our life lie beyond the realm of reality. I differ from Ginsburg in that I have never been able to look for or find any joys, great or small, beyond the realm of reality, whatever that means. Or, or at least I haven't yet, but her sense of an ancient and immutable law seems to me spot on and in certain circumstances a great relief. We might as Buddhists call that ancient and immutable law the law of karma, the law of cause and effect. And these forces often are um, changing the course of history way beyond our, our means to, to do anything about them, fix them. She continues, I don't mean to imply that there aren't 10,000 reasons that we shouldn't be where we are today or that no one is responsible for the suffering at hand and to come. People are responsible and we know their names. People were also responsible for the murder of Ginsburg's husband who went from writing at that oval table surrounded by his children's toys to dying of cardiac arrest and acute cholecystitis in prison, the latter being a gallbladder infection likely brought on by torture. I only mean to say that for those steeped in the belief that great calamity should not, cannot be our lot, or that if we work hard enough or try hard enough or hope hard enough, or are good or inventive enough, we might be able to outfox it. It can be a relief to admit our folly and rejoin the species, which is defined as are all forms of life by a terrible and precious precarity to which some bodies need no introduction. All of us, like all the species that are under threat or have already passed into extinction. We too are precarious. I think I reached for winter in the Abruzzi because I needed this reminder. I needed its stern and tender fellowship, which it delivered to me today across 76 years and 6,331 miles, much further than six feet away. That essay brought me to tears that the essay brought me to tears was not new, but this time 
rather than weep for Ginsburg alone, I wept for us all as we too bought oranges at Giro's and went walking in the snow. That's one of the things that is is so unsettling about this this pandemic is that it is a very strong reminder of our precarity, our vulnerability. A reminder of the of the the great forces that can can sweep through us. This precarity is um, another way of saying our impermanence and our and our uh, dependence on so many different things for our existence, our interconnectedness. But to finish up by just reading some short passages from a another article by a, a Vajrayana teacher. This one's name is Elizabeth Mattis Nyamgyal. And the article is called Nurturing the Intelligent Heart. And she talks in this article about bodhicitta. This is a the, the translation she uses for bodhicitta is intelligent heart, which I think is a very good one. This combination of um, compassion and wisdom that is bodhicitta, the mind of enlightenment or the intelligent heart and she talks about three different kinds of bodhicitta and we're just going to be reading from her um, description of the third kind which is absolute bodhicitta and absolute bodhicitta um, is uh, really embraced by the by the sixth of the of the paramitas, paramita of wisdom. So it's seeing things clearly, seeing them as they are. Or as she puts it, being realistic about the ways of the world and who you are in it. And she writes, at the dawn of the Buddha's awakening, he said something curious and potent. He said, this being, that becomes. From the arising of this, that arises. This not being, that becomes not. From the cessation of this, that ceases. A simpler way to frame this is to say that everything arises presents itself and falls away due to infinite causes and conditions. In the sutras, the Buddha used the analogy of two bundles of reeds leaning up against each other to illustrate that if one were to knock over one bundle, the other would, as a result, fall to the ground. Everything stands by virtue of something else. In essence, everything leans. This being, that becomes, and because this falls, that falls. This is a beautiful way of understanding this life of ours, that each and everything, every one of us, leans. 
We depend. This being, that becomes. Because this falls, that falls. So of course this is the teaching of dependent arising. Pratitsamupada. She writes, At first glance, dependent arising sounds simple and obvious, but it has deep implications. The Buddha is saying that what we call experience or life is generated by the activity of causes and conditions, infinite elements bumping up against, interrupting and influencing each other. If you were to explore dependent arising in a nuanced way, as is done in the Mahayana tradition of analytical meditation, you would find that there is no singular thing that is whole and not made of parts. You would also find that because everything shares a relationship of mutual dependency, inertia is not possible. It is because everything leans that movement, perception and creation, creative expression can happen. Or we could say, because of death, there can be birth, there can be life, there can be change, transformation. And she goes on to talk about um, the only possible, really possible attitude when we, we understand the nature of our life is an attitude of awe, wonder and awe. Awe and humility actually provide a critical function when it comes to our own and other, others' well-being. When you deprive your mind of curiosity and openness, even your noblest endeavours become militaristic and righteous. Because we so often misunderstand the open dimensional nature of contingent relationships, we at times try to fix the world. You might sweep into a situation in order to put things in order with a strong conviction that you know what's going on and how you will change how you would change things. Perhaps you think you've got all the players pegged and you already know what motivates them. But when all of your ideas congregate around the truth of your own hypothesis, it won't even occur to you that someone may have something else to offer or that there is something you yourself can learn. Or we may just be fantasizing about this in our minds, thinking, trying to set the world straight. The practical nature of awe allows the mind to bear witness to the fathomless nature of contingency without shutting down around definitive conclusions. Such a mind is humble and curious, poised to recognize the nature of reality and protected from fundamentalism and doubt. You will recognize the practical nature of awe when despair becomes compassion, righteous indignation transforms into openness and humility and the tendency to want to fix things turns into a natural unhindered longing to respond. 
Bodhicitta is the path of understanding who you are in the fathomless nature of infinite contingency and then developing the skills to navigate this reality, your life, in a way that is awakening for both yourself and for others. If you understand that everything leans, you will also understand that everything you do matters. This is why the Bodhisattva engages in a fierce commitment to serve others by doing so emerging from the confusion of a separate, confined self. So you might ask yourself, as a citizen of the great nature of infinite contingency, what might you do with your life? How can you utilize it in a meaningful way? How will you burn with love in this unfixable world? These are, these are very good COVID-19 pandemic questions. How can we live in this world of uncertainty? How can we burn with love in this unfixable world? We, we, this, these forces are great. We, we can't do much of them on, on, a, on a, a large scale, but there's so much we can do. Um, another phrase that uh, I think it's from the same article and I took down as a note is giving up on knowing but not giving up on care not giving up on care Let's finish with um, some words of Master Huggins. I read these out at a at a, a recent Sunday sitting, but um, some of you may not have heard this. He writes: Buddhas are dissatisfied. Zen masters are dissatisfied. Whatever comes up in heaven or hell is all dissatisfaction. The great guides of humanity and the angels vow to settle the grievances of all living beings. This is our, our first of our four vows that we're going to chant in just a moment. To take on this task, this impossible task of liberating infinite numbers of beings over an infinite period time of time. This, this wide open vow. This vow that that enlarges our minds and hearts. That if we can tap into it, it is deeply sustaining. stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, 
I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain. That's all for this evening. There will be an informal sitting tomorrow at 6 and another at, at noon. And tomorrow evening we'll be having the first of our book club sessions uh, starting at 7. Very appropriately um, looking at Shanti Deva's The Way of the Bodhisattva. And there's information about how to connect with that meeting in our most recent newsletter and also information, a page of information on the website under resources. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, 
please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.